So, good morning. Am I? Oh, there you go. I can hear myself, and that's good. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm Elder Dan Huerta. Uh, oh, sorry. Yes, I forgot about this. I'm so used to it, just like a lot of us that completely forget. Thank you. Um, I grew up mainly in a Hispanic home, uh, going to Spanish churches all my life. I think uh, since from the age of, you know, since I was born until like 30-something years old, I had only gone to an English church about like five times growing up. And so when I made my way to Glendale Seventh-day Adventist Church, Gary invited me to be an elder from his church. He says, would you be an elder in my church? And I said, yeah, what does that require, I asked. He said, well, sometimes you have to preach. And I said, well, there's a problem. Although I did go to the school here, you know, like everyone else, born in the United States, I'm not very comfortable preaching in English. I had never preached in English before. So what it's normal to you, the names in the Bible in English is completely difficult for me because I had never heard them all of my life. And so I, I am still tentative and get nervous still when I get up here and I have to read some of these hard names. Hopefully I don't have to do that today. But um, yes, that's, that's growing up and, and God you know, made me a calling to come and to preach and be a preaching elder. Uh, they also uh, asked me to preach at a, a Maricopa Village Church, which is a church in the Native American Reservation. And so I also preached there, and it's been a blessing to serve God as a preacher and to expand on the world and to teach the gospel. It's a, a passion of mine. And so um, before we start, let's start with a word of prayer to get God's blessing before we start anything else. So just as you are, let's bow our heads and pray first. Dear Heavenly Father, we are about to open the word. We're about to be ready for your message. God, I ask that you... Again, just help us out. Uh, open our minds, uh, calm our nerves, um, teach us, Lord. Sit next to us and guide us through the message. Guide me as I explain what you have um, helped me to prepare for the church today. And let it be a nourishment, God, as bread is to our body. Let it be a nourishment to our soul, to our spiritual soul, God. And like I said before, as we leave and long after we leave, let the message linger still with us, God, and transform us as we abide in you. It is in, my name, it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, the, the title is to... We were made for something much greater than ourselves. Um, I remember when my, I have two older sisters. They're, you know, five years apart. And so each of us is five years apart. So we're only three kids. And when my older sister had uh, her child, she had two girls. And I wanted a nephew. I really, really wanted a nephew. And she didn't give me any nephews. And so I was, you know, I was, I really wanted one and she didn't give me one. So I was like, well, I have to wait for my other sister, my older sister, the one in the middle. So she, if she had any kids, she would grant me the privilege of having a child, a boy, a baby boy. And so when she had her first kid, she, you know, she called me from the hospital and she said, it's a girl. And I was devastated. She goes, just kidding. It is a boy. And so I was excited. I was like, finally get to have a baby boy in the house. I never had a little brother. So this was going to be the second best thing as having a brother was to have a nephew, a baby boy. And so when, when a child is born in a home, parents usually just go and they daydream of what they want this child to be. You know, this child is going to make a decision on their own eventually, but they don't care. We as parents, nephew, as, you know, as, you know, we don't care. We just want to plan their whole lives ahead of time. We want to say, ah, oh, he's going to be this and he's going to be that and I'm going to do this. And so I likely planned for him. I said, oh, I want him to do this. I want him to be like a, a preacher like me. I will teach him how to stand and, and to preach. And, you know, as he's growing up, I remember the first time my, just to let you know, my two older sisters, they sing in church. And God gave them the, the talent and the gift of singing. And 
I remember s- sitting in a church, and my n- nephew um, was about seven years old, and he was going to sing with his mom. And, you know, she's in the pulpit, she's in the front, and then here's a little seven-year-old boy, so proud of him. And I hear him, and I had never realized that this boy, at six years old, was singing full-blown harmony, already at six years old. And it gave me chills all over my body. I said, oh, he's going to be a singer, not a preacher. Ah, man, I kind of wanted to be a preacher, but, you know, it's okay. You know, and we kind of get, you know, disillusioned. You know, we like, oh, I really wanted him to be a preacher. And uh, to this day, he will never accept that, you know, he has to be a preacher because I want him to be a preacher. And so we get a little bit devastated. I heard a, a, a Christian comedian say that his four-year-old son walked up to him one day and said, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be a doctor. Oh, he was filled with joy. Awesome. Or a dinosaur. I said, well, that's kind of weird, right? A dinosaur. Or a dinosaur. And so we plan for our children's lives. I plan for my nephew's life. But sometimes they disappoint us. Sometimes they, their life choices, what their, their vision for their lives are not what we intend them to be. Yet, but we are still created to be much greater than ourselves. We were intended to be something much greater than ourselves. What happens when we have a great plan for our children, what they should be, and all they want to be is just dinosaurs? Shooting down our high expectations. I have a question. Do you think our Heavenly Father has likewise expectations for His children? We have expectations for our children. When they grow up, we know what they're going to be. And we don't care what, you know, they're going to grow up and they're going to say they want to be astronauts. And we're like, no, 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 you're going to be this. And we have expectations that normally are not going to be fulfilled. But then we have to think, does our Heavenly Father have expectations for us also? Let's see. Um, I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 14. We're going to hear a story about one of God's children and about his expectations for one of his, chil- one of his children, one of, one of his kids. 2 Kings chapter 14. There's a king that I'm going to speak about today in Jeroboam. I hope I'm pronouncing that. I have problems with those. (laughs) And it says in verse 24, just going to read that first sentence. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if we jump to verse 25, he says, he was one. Who restored, he was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo, Hamath, to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah. Did you ever know that Jonah was mentioned in the Bible besides the book of Jonah? I just found that out this week, and I was pretty amazed at it. Son of Imatai, the, prof, uh, the prophet from Gath, Hafer, Hefer. Um, the Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of of Hiosh. I don't know how to pronounce it. You'll forgive me. The story is that God asked Jonah, and this is our first story of Jonah ever doing something for the Lord as a prophet. This was, as far as we know, his first time ever preaching. Am I supposed to stay in, in, in the camera? I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I am sorry that I'm causing him a heartache. I'm sorry. So this, by all means, we know was that he 
was supposed to do his first job. And God said, listen, you're going to tell this king who has been evil in my eyes, tell him that I'm going to allow him to have victory over the enemy. Although he's being very bad, go ahead and tell him that I, I will ha give him victory. This is Jonas's piece of cake. This is like, okay. So all I have to do is go tell the king, hey, listen, you know, you've been doing pretty bad, but God says that he's going to allow you to have victory. Because he, God sees the oppression and sees that you're having a hard time, he's going to give it to you. And so we say, hey, it's a piece of cake, Jonah. But then again, now I invite you to go to the book of Jonah. Because now Jonah's going to have a second opportunity, a second calling by God. And the first one was easy. So we would think, hey, Jonah is pretty, you know, he's pretty eager to follow God's word, follow God's command. He will do it. And so we have, we arrived here at the book of Jonah, which we know Jonah for. We know the story. We're not going to dwell too much of it. I don't intend to say things that pastors have already said. You know, I don't want to repeat it. Um, but we see that there's a problem right off the bat. In the first chapter, in the first verse, the problem already exists. Usually, you know, read a story in the Bible, it's way into it, you know, the sixth. The but this one, the problem starts right at the beginning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh to preach against it and because it is because its wickedness has come up before me but Jonah Jonah ran away from the Lord so context Assyrian army was one of the cruelest evilest armies and people and nation and Nineveh was the capital of it and God is saying, go preach against them. We have this understanding that the gospel is in the New Testament and God opened the gospel to the New, in the New Testament and they preached it and they said, well, God was only interested in the Gentiles in the New Testament. Well, we have this amazing evidence that God was interested in the salvation of the worst nation that we could think of at that time. And he's saying, go preach against it. Go tell them what they're doing wrong. As any preacher would tell you, that's a hard job to do from here. To tell the members of the church that they're doing something wrong or just to address a specific subject that we're touchy about, it's a hard thing to do. And so he has to do it to people who don't care about God. And that's what he has to do. And it says that he runs away from the Lord. So instead of us going and reading this, we know the story. I want to draw your attention to another story that's similar to this. And it's found in Genesis 4, 16. The phrase that ran away from the Lord, we we're going to see that phrase in a different way, in a different context in Genesis chapter 4, would you turn your pages in your Bible? So Genesis chapter 4, 16, and see how that's going to relate to our story. Genesis 4, 16. I'll give you some time to get there. And it says this. So Cain went out from the Lord's Presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, although those words are not exactly the same, they have the same idea and the same context. And let me explain to you why. Most scholars believe that when you're talking about leaving the presence of the Lord, it's not that I'm going to go to my house. I'll see you later, or we're just going to spend some time apart. Leaving the presence of the Lord was leaving everything that had to do with God and being as far away from Him as possible. For instance, when I was younger, we had those cars that didn't have all the satellite stereos on them. 
So when my dad would take us on a road trip to California, let me stay in the camera. When he, my dad would take us to trip to California, we would play the station. And from here to Blight, it was okay. Passing Blight, there was just this connection and the radio would make this funny noise. And the further along west we, we would go, there were more until we would lose the connection. And so the farther, the farther you go, you lose the connection. There's a connection to the radio station. The antenna wasn't grabbing the radio station. So for Cain and, and, and Jonah, they were saying, you know what, God, we want to get as far away from you as possible. We want to get far away from the temple, from your presence, from hearing your voice, from hearing the spirit of prophecy, the things that you have for us to do in the future, for my life, for their lives. We want to get away from anything that has related to you. We know that Cain did that because God said we had demanded that he would do a sacrifice. The sacrifice was just so that he would understand one day the Messiah was going to come. And he had to do that because in remembrance, he had to do that to remember my, the Heavenly Father has to do and bring somebody, a Messiah to come. And he completely did not understand it because he brought fruit. And God says, I can't accept that. You're missing the point, son. And he got upset, and we know the story we talked about a little bit on Sabbath school. He killed his brother. He was so angry because God had accepted that, and he hadn't accepted what he had brought. And so he killed him, and he said, you know what? Well, that's fine. That's the last sacrifice that I will ever do. And he left the presence of the Lord. I will no longer come to the temple. I have nothing to do with the temple. Whatever it signifies, the symbols in the temple, whatever it reflects the character of God, anything that reflects the character of God or points to God's character, I want nothing to do with it. And Cain steps away from the presence of God. And Jonah, been told to preach to a heathen place, says, I don't want nothing to do with it, Lord. And sometimes if you read that, you think that he was leaving, I'll come back later. He was leaving to say, I can't believe you're going to do that. And because I can't believe you're really going to give them the gospel, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave the presence of God. I'm going to leave the temple. I'm fed up. I can't believe you're going to really do this. And he's leaving. He's going to leave it all. But what does it really mean to run away from the Lord, to go out from the Lord's presence? I want the book of Daniel and Daniel himself, the character that we know, to give us more into depth of what it is. So let's go to Daniel 6. Daniel 6.10. I want to emphasize this temple sanctuary idea to you. What, what it meant for him to leave the sanctuary. To leave the sanctuary, to leave the temple was to leave God's presence. It was the same. It wasn't just, I'm leaving the church. It was more than just the church. It was more than just the place where they would worship. It was leaving the presence of God. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 the context is that they had made a decree that if anyone prayed to anyone outside the king, they were going to be taken prison and thrown into the lion's den. You know the story. And so Daniel had read the decree. And so when he reads the decree, he does what he always did. He didn't care. He wasn't going to change his behavior. He wasn't, right? Some people say, if you're going to be accused of being a Christian, are there going to be any evidence hold against you? Are they going to find you to be guilty of being a Christian? And we want to say that hopefully they find something that tells us that we are Christian. The problem would be if they are going to accuse you of being a Christian and they can't find anything, there's a problem there. So he said, well, if they're going to accuse me of being a Christian, they're going to find evidence. Amen? So he goes up to his, 
Daniel 10 says, Then Daniel went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And I want to suggest to you that he's not opening these doors right before he's going to get taken into the lion's den and to be killed, possibly. He's not going to open the doors and just say, Wow, there goes Jerusalem over there, and this is just, I'm homesick. They didn't write this to show you that Daniel was homesick right before he's going to be taken to the lion's den. Daniel's opening his doors towards the temple. And all the temple at this time has been destroyed. He's looking far beyond the earthly temple. He's looking, all oh, the presence of the Lord is there. The presence of the Lord, the sanctuary is not earthly, but the sanctuary is in heaven. Everything that it was here, our model was in heaven. So he's looking at where the temple used to be, but his soul lingers for the temple of the earthly sanctuary, the temple that everything reflects the love of God. And that's what he reflected on every day, three times a day. The temple reflected God's character. It was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God was in the temple working for our sins. He knew that. And so what he did, he opened the doors and he said the temple where God's presence is says I'm gonna I'm gonna abide with God in this moment my spirit is gonna abide with God in the temple I don't care that they're gonna throw me if this is the last thing I do I'm going to abide with God the last minutes of my life and so you see the difference between Cain and Jonah they're leaving that. They don't have that desire like Daniel has a desire. He's far away from the temple. He hasn't been able to send a sacrifice in years. But his heart is in the temple. His heart is where God is. He wants to be there while Jonah and Cain are wanting to leave it. But these are not heathen people we're talking about. These are people who know the gospel, who know God who knew God, who knew his precepts. We're not talking about heathen here, and yet we see a distinction of how they feel with the things about God. Daniel yearned to be reminded of those things in the temple that explained the character of God. Oh, you know, we have the, the candlestick Reminded him, I'm the light of the world here in Babylon. God in the, the, the presence, the prayers that go into the temple, the, his character, the commandments of God, the law of God, the atoning sacrifice that's made for my sins, everything that reminded Daniel yearned for those things, to be close to those things. If we read Psalms. 27.4. I'll give you a chance so you can read that with your own eyes. Psalms 24.7. David has the same sense that Daniel has. David has the exact same sense of Daniel. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Brothers and sisters, I, I believe that when he's talking here, that he may dwell every day of his life in the temple, he's not talking about the literal sanctuary, the temple, the church. That I may dwell with God's presence in his temple, in his church, in heaven. I want to dwell there with him. He had it close by, but he's talking about the temple. Let me dwell where God is at, in the holy place. Let me dwell with him there. Whatever he's doing, whatever it points out, his law, his character, that it's pure. There, there is no error in it. I want to dwell there. This one thing I ask, do you see the language she's using? As if a child comes to you on Christmas. Mom, Dad, the one thing I really do want... Same language. David, the one thing I desire is to be in the presence of the Lord. 
And we read that sometimes and we are disconnected with how he is portraying this language, how he's showing emotion, how he wants to be in the temple. But we've been caught in our lives where we haven't felt like that in forever. I don't know when the last time I got excited about talking about the presence of the Lord. I don't know when the last time I got excited for talking about the sanctuary and where God is at and what he, it's about to be finished and he's coming. I don't know when the last time I felt that way. Yet David is showing us, oh, he's feeling this all the time. The Psalms, God, I, you are my rock, you are my protection. He's talking about that temple in heaven. Hide me in your sanctuary. Hide me in the, in, the, in the secret place of your tabernacle. Not the one here. Because men could have gone into that tabernacle. He's talking about hide me in the secret place of your tabernacle. Hide me where Satan can't come and get me. That's where he's at. That's where Daniel was at. Look, they can kill my body, but as long as you promise me, one day I will go there. The difference, the difference. This is the Old Testament version of Hebrews 10, 19. Turn to Hebrews 10, 19. And I'm going to give you enough time for you to get here. Because I really want you to read this carefully with me. Hebrews 10, 19. You know, we know in Hebrews, and we talked to some, uh, a, someone in, in, in the Sabbath school mentioned that the Hebrews was the, the, the same book where they're talking about the, the, heroes, uh, the heroes of the faith. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, so-and-so did that. And so it's a, the faith chapter. The heroes. If we want to talk about the heroes of the Bible and their faith, like if they were displayed in a trophy case, the heroes are in this chapter. Hebrews 10.19 says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he in, inaugurated for us through the veil that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest under the house of God, let us approach God with sincere heart in full assurance of his faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let me emphasize this verse. Because it says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is telling you, look, Jesus came, die, came and died for you. So now, have the confidence by faith. This is a faith chapter. By faith in what he did, come into the holy place. Not the sanctuary. We know that in the earthly sanctuary, no one could go there but the, the priest. And the high priest, one day in atonement, he would go into the most holy place. So nobody could go there. So what he's referring to here is by faith, go into the holy place. Go into the place where God is at. By faith, because he did something for you. He died for you. And so now you can do something that before it was unfathomable for you to enter into the holy place was crazy. It's crazy language. You couldn't even say that. It wasn't even an idea. It wasn't a fathomable idea to enter the holy place. You ask any old people from the Jewish nation, when they, the scholars of their nation, was it possible people go and they're going to say, you know. But he's saying by faith, what Jesus did, he died for your sins. You can go in prayer and go into the holy place and pray to God and abide there with him. So let me suggest to you that when Daniel and David prayed and they're talking about being in the temple, 
They knew something about the sanctuary way in the Old Testament that we come now to realize by this chapter. We were saying, oh, now we could go because of what Jesus did. But let me suggest to you that David and Daniel were already thinking that. They were already by faith going into the temple. They were already by faith with God, abiding with God in the temple by faith. When they prayed to their God, they were in the temple by faith. They had faith that the sacrifices they were making symbolized Jesus that would come even if they didn't see him. And they didn't see him. Daniel didn't see the Messiah come. David didn't see the Messiah come. But by faith they were in the temple because they say by faith God will provide. And so by faith they were in there. By faith that the Messiah was to come and to make atonement for the world, Daniel and David lived by faith in the Lord's temple, in the heavenly sanctuary, the daily abiding in the presence of the Most High. They were already doing it before the Hebrews was even written and said that you can do it. Listen to what Jesus told the Samaritan in Luke chapter 4. Go with me to Luke chapter 4. Verse 22. Let me give you some time to get there. This Samaritan woman is avoiding God's questionings and she's She's, she's avoiding it. She's, uh, she doesn't want to get, he's, he, he went a little bit deep into her personal life and she wants to back it up and change the subject. So she's talking about spiritual stuff just to change the subject because she feels uncomfortable as so do we when God addresses something specific or sore in our spiritual life. She asks, you know, about spiritual things. And in verse uh, John four twenty two. You Samaritans, Jesus said to her, you Samaritans worship, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. Now listen, he's not saying salvation is for the Jews. He says salvation is from the Jews. Let me explain to you if you're having a hard time understanding what that means. He's saying, yes, it's true. One day you're going you're gonna to worship me in spirit and in truth. Yes, one day there's not going to be a temple where you're going to have to go specifically. Yes, you're going to worship me in spirit and truth. Yes, but salvation right now is of the Jews. That means they know what salvation requires. They know something that I've given them to impart to the world. Salvation is from the Jews. If you want to know about salvation, you have to go to, Jew, to, the, to Jerusalem and to understand and to acquire. The problem at that time was the Pharisees, the, Jew, the religious leaders, had taken salvation that God had given them and piled a whole bunch of behaviors modifications. What do I have to do to be saved? And they piled a whole bunch of things to the salvation God had given them to give to the world. And so people couldn't even find it in the pile of all this stuff that they had to do works for my salvation. What do I have to do? There must be something that I have to do. It can't just be free. You know, you notice that when someone gives you a gift in Christmas, like you're at work and someone just gives you an expensive gift, it's hard for us to be like, oh, thankful, thank you, thank you, oh, so thank you. The moment we think like, oh, man, he shouldn't have given me, now I have to give him one too. Why do we think that? Because we have a hard time accepting gifts. Oh, man, now, oh, look, that must have been expensive. Now I have to buy him a gift. And then we stress about it and we lose, we lose the idea that someone thought of you and gave you something. 
And all you have to do to, for it to be a gift is accept it and to keep it. And to enjoy from it. Yet here are the Jews that are not accepting a free gift. No, I have to do something for it. And the whole nations are looking at, at, at the Jew nation at that time and saying, well, man, it's too difficult. What they're asking for is too difficult. God must be a bad, evil God to do all that stuff. And yet Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman, hey, the salvation is of the Jews. God's people had the 411. You know, you tell that to a new generation, 411, they don't understand what you're talking about. We understand that before you would go and get your, in your telephone and you would not, you know, mark 411 and they, you would get the operator and they would assist you. Now we call her Siri. God's people had Siri's help for the 411 on how salvation worked and in whom salvation was found. It's not what you do, it's who you know. And who you know will transform what you do. Right? That has not changed since the beginning of time. It's who you know that will transform what you do. It's not what you do. Sometimes, you know, as Adventists we get, you know, we hopefully we have to do this, we have to do a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And you're like, wait, 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 don't let's not go back to that same mentality that they had at that time. Again, how then do you explain why on God's green earth did the Pharisees in Jesus' time, when they heard John the Baptist say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he said those words, how in God's green earth did they not understand who he was talking about or what he was talking about? He's using literal sanctuary lingo. He's the lamb of the world who takes away the sins. You, you work in the temple. How do you not know the vocabulary? How do you not know that this is the Messiah that you are waiting for? Since the beginning, and you mentioned it on the, on the, on the, on the Sabbath school. Adam and Eve thought when Cain was born, this must be the Messiah. We're going to wait for the Messiah. He might be. Cain might be this kid, this is Messiah. Since Adam and Eve, they had been waiting for the Messiah. So when he tells them, this is a lamb that you know, washes the, the, all your sins, they're oblivious. Like he said, a math equation that they're, they're not understanding. I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. He's talking to them the, the lingo of the tabernacle, the temple. Daniel and David understood it. They would have understood it because they abided with God and they studied the sanctuary every day because something is happening in the sanctuary as we speak that pertains to our salvation, that pertains to our salvation, that pertains to the salvation of the world and what our job is. And the Pharisees at that time were clueless. What do you mean? They thought... When someone is born in the United States, they say he is an American. Unequivocally, if he was born in the United States, he's an American. The Jews thought, if I was born a Jew, I am saved. Just because I'm a Jew. That was their mentality. And so when they see, when they hear John the Baptist say, this is the Lamb of the world. They're like, what are you talking about? I don't have to confess my sins. I don't have to bring a... They just thought, I'm a Jew. I'm already saved. I wonder if sometimes we get that idea. We're Seventh-day Adventists. We know the doctrine. We still study the sanctuary sometimes. We know the truth. We're born in the church. What does that mean, born in the church? Does that mean the same thing as a Jew? Mean, I'm a Jew. I am saved by being a Jew. Does that mean the same thing when we say I was born in the church? It should not equate that you say that you were born in the church, that you have a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. 
I gave up on that phrase a long time ago. No, don't tell me that you're a Seventh-day Adventist or that you were raised in the church. Show me that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Show me the light and I will believe you. Because it, it, it happens naturally. You are a moon. That when you abide with God in the sanctuary, he is the son of righteousness. And the more you hang out with God in his tabernacle, in his sanctuary, when you abide with him, you have, there's no way you cannot reflect his light. You go in there and something comes out of it. If it's little or big, it depends how you abide, but something comes out of it. Moses went up to Mount Sinai and he had, it was just, you couldn't help it. He came down and he shined the glory of God. You go and you abide with God in the temple, you come down and people will start noticing. After a while, people will start noticing there's something different about you. You're a moon that reflects the Son of God. We were created for something greater than ourselves. Jonah hated the fact. Let me see, I think I went, sorry. Let me, I'm going to take some time because I need to, I don't know how much time I have left, but I promise this, this is important. So that's my excuse. I promise this is important. I was in a time in my life about in, let's say this, my, I'm going to tell you about something that happened to me in August of last year. And I was in a time in my life where I wanted to do what Jonah was going to do. I want to be like, you know what, uh, the pressure of, I think I, 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 I was fed into that I had to do something, I have to work, I have to work, and I'm doing all this stuff, God, and bad things happen to me, and just every, eventually you're going to have to deal with that in your life, in your spiritual walk. You think that sh certain things shouldn't happen to you because you're walking with the Lord, and you're naive to think that because you're a Christian it shouldn't happen to you. Because God didn't promise a nice little, you know, he didn't say this was the world. He didn't say this was it. He said, oh, there's, you want, your home is in heaven. So I was naive in my unexperience to say, God, all these things are just piling up at one time. Everything, one after another. And being a preacher was even worse. I was being attacked Spiritually, when I would preach, I would get down, and then it was just like depression and sadness, and and I'm like, God, I can't do that, and I am willing to, if 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 that's what it means to preach the gospel and being attacked spiritually, I'd rather not preach, and just save me the heartache. And so I was in that moment. I wanted to walk away, because you know, going out and preaching the gospel comes with this spiritual attack because the devil doesn't want you to do that. And so I wanted to like step away from it. You know, I, I didn't want to address it out loud because there's people that I know now that if I even suggest something like that or they see a behavior, I will have five people come to my door and pray for me. So I have friends now who will do that. Praise the Lord. We need friends that way. But I was, you know, trying to like easily walk away without letting people know. And in August, I, was, I went to the early service at my church, and I was driving home. I had a little Ford Focus, tiny little Ford Focus, and I was driving on the freeway. A friend of mine from the church, he was a youth leader, had passed away the day before. And so I was angry, pointing my finger at God and saying, God, how could you let this man die? He was a spiritual man. He left a child, a one-year-old. And I was yelling at God. It was the excuse that I needed to walk away. And I had my excuse. And I was yelling and it was building up. I'm driving. And I'm at the farthest lane where the divider is. I'm driving the I-17 going southbound. And I'm close to the barrier, the lane that is closest to the barrier. And then I'd move one lane to, the, to, the, you know, to my right. And I'm driving. I'm mad at God when I don't see that the, on the other side, a dump truck, a diesel, you know, 18-wheeler, had lost 
not just the tire, but the rim from his diesel engine, the front one, the driver's side, had came off of his vehicle, jumped up the barrier, bounced once in, in, the, in the pavement, went up, and by the time I saw it, I couldn't uh, move fast enough. So I, by God's presence, by God's help, the car moved just enough so it didn't hit my windshield straight up where it was heading. It was heading directly towards my face. The tire wasn't ripped. It was fully had air on it. So it's coming like a rocket towards my little vehicle. And it's coming and God moves it just enough so that it hits my passenger side. But it turns it into a convertible. Everything comes in. And I am locked into a tiny little space. The roof caves in down. And the tire comes in and just hits still. The pressure does hit me. My arm flies up and then goes out of the freeway. The car skids, you know, to, to a stop. The glass shatters and I have it all like just sprinkled on my face. I have cuts. And I have pain. I get off. There's people who stop. The engine sets on fire. I'm thinking I'm going to be inside the door. The, the door doesn't open as quickly as I wanted to. I'm thinking I'm going to, I'm going to die burnt in my vehicle. And I'm yelling at God. You don't want that to happen. You, I don't wish that on anyone. That you're arguing with God. You have a car accident. And it lights on fire. And you're like, I can't get up. The sad part is that I wasn't even asking for forgiveness. I was just scared of my life. They helped me out. People, gracious people, God had sent them there. And, you know, there was uh, EMTs, off-duty EMTs that arrived to me. You know, they were like, hey, we are off-duty EMTs. They came, they helped me. It was hot. My, you know, I was bleeding in certain places. You know, I had to take off my, my tie and it was hot. Arizona heat still. And I was going through all this and the police come and I'm answering a thousand questions and they're checking me and it's hot and I'm thirsty and I'm going a lot of mixed emotions. The, 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 tow, tow, the tow truck driver comes and the police say, well, we can't give you a ride home. Maybe the tow driver come, can give you a ride home. So I asked him, can you? I can't give you. It's not our policy. We can't give you a ride home either. My phone was lost somewhere in the, in the pile, in the rubbish of what was left of the car. And I didn't know where the phone was at. So I'm like, I have no one to call. And, you know, before, a long time ago, before cell phones, you would actually remember people's numbers. Um, I am part of that generation that I just know one number and they don't live here in Arizona. So I am in trouble. And so everything is in my phone. And so the guy said, look, you know, just we'll load up the car and I can drop you off at a gas station and you could call someone. And he's driving. He's really saying, did you really get out of that vehicle? I can't believe anybody would survive that. The whole roof caved in. If that would have hit you, you would have your head would have split open. And I'm like, yeah, thank you for reminding me. Yes, I understand this. And he says, man, you know what I'm going to do? And he goes, he pulled over. He said, I'm going to look for your phone. So he got off, he parked on the side, and he dove in into the little space of the window, and he dove in, he found my phone, he said, here, man, call someone, have someone pick you up. And so I went, and I got home, and I, you know, I was calling, I called my sister, and I said, can you come? I just had a car accident. I will wait for you at a QT, I gave her the address, could you come? She said, yes, I'll be there in a little bit. The only thing that I could take out of the car was my phone and this Bible. So I had untucked my tie, um, untuck, uh, you know, undone my tie, untucked my shirt. There was blood and glass everywhere. My hair was all messed up. I was in pain, throbbing pain. And I'm walking like a block away where, the, where this you know, QT is at because he didn't really drop me off in the QT. And I'm walking, I'm walking, and I'm having a bad day. A case of the Mondays, but it's a Saturday. 
Okay, there is no, you know, when we say, let, let, let the Sabbath be just ah, a blessing. Well, there was no blessing for me that day. I was having a worst day of my life on the Sabbath. And I get to the QT, and I have my Bible under my arm, and I'm, this one is hurting, so I'm just walking, I'm trying to get to some shade. And I see this elderly lady who had just finished pumping gas in her car, she sees me, she gets in her car, she rolls down the window, and she's still watching me. And I want to avoid any contact with someone. I don't have time for any, anything. No drama, I don't want to have a conversation with anybody. I'm not in a good mood. Can you understand? So I'm like, I just want to, I just want to go to some shade and sit down. Is that just, you know, come on. It's the least that, I, you know, that can happen to me if I sit down. And she comes and she goes, sir, and, she, and she's a Spanish-speaking Hispanic woman, so she says in, in Spanish to me, could you come over? Can you come here? <sighs> and I walk over. Yes. She said, are you a Christian? <laughs> uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, she goes, what kind of Christian are you? What denomination are you from? I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm Seventh-day Adventist. <gasps> Perfect. I have family who are Seventh-day Adventist. I need you to pray for me. I said, no way. There is no way, God, that all this happened. All of this happened, and you want me to come into this place and talk to this woman and pray for her. You could have given me a flat tire, and I could have walked out and, and that, that was the next exit. I could have walked out the next exit and gone to the QT and talked to this woman in a better mood. God didn't say anything. Could you believe that? Say not a word. And I said, yes, ma'am. What can I pray for you about? She goes, okay, number one, I have, an, I have uh, you know, my grandchild. His name is Aaron. Aaron was in a car accident. It's a motorcycle accident, and he's paralyzed now. He's at a clinic where they got COVID, and he's scared that he's going to get COVID. So can you pray for Aaron? Yes, ma'am, I will pray for Aaron. Okay. I have another a grandson. You know, he's really bad. And he's into drugs, and we really need to pray for, you know, so-and-so. I forgot his name. And he says, okay, I will pray for him. Anything else, ma'am, that you want me to pray for? She goes, Yes. I want you to pray for me. She goes, I know I need God. I know I need him. And, you know, I, just, I have a hard time. Can you pray for me? I said, what's your name? She said, Guillermina. I said, okay, Guillermina, I will, I will pray for you. Okay, well, I'll let you run off. You know, you know, I know you're busy. And I said, okay. And she walked off. And I'm just walking there, and I said, I, I, God, really, I, I don't understand who you are. I don't understand the things that you do. You know, there's a verse that says, you know, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. The, the verse that we read in Jeremiah, I know that we do not, we don't have, our lives are not our own, is what Jeremiah is saying. Our lives are not our own so that you can do what you want. God made you for his glory for greater things than your own self. Is what Jeremiah is saying. You were created for something greater than yourself. So you come back to Jonah. Why did he bring Jonah? Is he, well, let me tell you why I'm going to speak about Jonah in the beginning of it. Jonah's thinking just about himself. I can't believe that you're going to borrow my salvation as a Jew and you give it to those people. It's ours. We don't want it for them. They don't deserve it. And have you ever noticed that the book of Jonah is unfinished? It's not, we, don't, we don't come to a definite, oh, this is a story. It's done. The end. We, we're left in this, like, what did Jonah, is Jonah going to heaven? Did he repent? Because Nineveh repented. 
And the prophet is like, we don't know. Let me suggest to you something that a pastor helped me to understand. I'm going to bring this to your attention. It's just a suggestion. Let me suggest to you that the book of Jonah is unfinished. It's not complete. Because just like Jonah's story, you will write the ending. You are going to be called to preach the gospel that you were taught. The gospel that just like the Jews, the salvation was of the Jews. Salvation is now prophetically of the Seventh-day Adventist church. You have all the tools, all the writing, all the teachings to know, be equipped to know God, to know his character, and to know how to preach the gospel. You are going to be called to do that. To spend time in the sanctuary. Know where God is at now. Where Jesus is at in the sanctuary. What does that mean? What is he doing? And is it almost finished? And what does that relate to what you are supposed to do? Because you have to, and so you are going to write that story. At the end of the story, is it going to be written of you and I? Did Brother Elder Dan leave the church? Or did he come back and say, God, I will finish the work. I will do what I was created to do. You will finish Jonah's story with your name. I want to finish this with the most amazing thing I found in L.A. And I'm going to finish with this. I promise. I read this and we're done. I read this in Ellen G. White. And I do not apologize for believing in Ellen G. White. I will never apologize. I believe that the Bible is above Ellen G. White, correct? But I will not apologize to believe in the spirit of prophecy that's beyond her. It's not that she's special. She was just a servant willing to serve. And she says this. Those who walk even as Christ walked, who are patient, gentle, kind, meek, and lowly in heart. Those who yoke up with Christ and lift his burdens, who yearn for souls as he yearned for them. These will enter into the joy of their Lord. They will see with Christ the travail of his soul and be, sas and be satisfied. Here's, my, here's where it culminates. When I read this, I got chills. Heaven will triumph. Heaven will triumph for the vacancies made in heaven by the fall of Satan and his angels. You ready for it? Will be filled by the redeemed of the Lord. The Review and Herald, May 29, 1900. The vacancy left by what were once the children of God who rebelled and left the temple. The original ones who left the temple who said, I don't want anything to do with God and anything that reflects his love and character. Those spaces, those vacancies will be filled by you and I, but not just you and I. That we may have the love for the world to say, I want them to go to. I want Nineveh to go to. And such is what the Holy Spirit will put in our hearts. The implantation, it's a spiritual operation that's only be done when you spend time abiding with Jesus in his sanctuary. He will give you the heart to love those people and to say, I want them to fill the void left by those Demons and the, the fallen angels. I want us to go and, and get as many of those people into it. But that's never going to happen if we do not abide with God in his temple. To know where he's at, to know where he's doing. Brothers and sisters, the sanctuary is a real subject. It's an important subject. 
And it's almost done. And what are we doing? What are we reflecting? The way we do things with our neighbors, with our family, the way we reflect is what we know. And what we know is that he's almost done, but do we reflect that in our acting, in our treating other people? Do we reflect that? We're saying, hey, I want you to go to heaven, so let me, let me serve you. Let me testify to you. It's going to be your testimony. What has God done for you that's going to bring those people in here and say, salvation is a set of the Seventh-day Adventist church. We want to know what you know. We want to know the God that you know because it's who you know will transform what you do. Amen. Who you know is going to bring all those people here by your testimony. And I pray that it's our testimony. That we realize that we were created for such greater things than ourselves.